Hello, and welcome to Writers on Writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and today we're focusing on our new release, Palm Springs Noir, just out from Akashic Books. Today I have Alex Espinoza and Rob Roberge, contributors to Palm Springs Noir, with me. And I also have a guest co-host, Corey Roskin. Um, I met Corey in 2004 when Pen on Fire came out and was and I was on a panel at the West Hollywood Book Fair, which Corey put together for the city of West Hollywood till 2013, although I could swear it was just a couple of years ago. Um, he continues to be a literary organizer, though to me, he's the literary maestro of Palm Springs. And, um, and so Corey, take, I'm actually Corey's yeah. co-host today. So Corey, take yeah. it away. All right. Well, thank you, Barbara. Yeah, yeah. That's when we met back in 2004 and through the West Hollywood Book Fair. Uh, that's, I think, where I initially met Alex and Rob as well. They both had been on panels there also. So um, fun to be with you all and to continue to support Palm Springs Noir. So um, I don't know who's tuning in and who knows about Barbara. I assume many of you do, but in case you don't, I'll do just a little introduction about her. Uh, aside from hosting this show, Writers on Writing, as Barbara mentioned, she is the author of Pen on Fire, and that was a Los Angeles Times bestseller. Her short story, Crazy for You, was published in Orange County Noir, and then later was in USA Noir, which was one of the best of the Akashic Noir series. And uh, that led to Palm Springs Noir, which we're going to talk about. And Barbara also has been published in many other places, uh, like the Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Review of Books, Inlandia, Shotgun Honey, Partners in Crime, and A Rock and a Hard Place. So welcome, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> Um, before we go to Alex and Rob and introduce them, do you want to talk for a minute about Palm Springs Noir and how that came about? Yeah, um, I didn't know you were going to ask me this, Corey. Um, ah. All <laughs> how right, hold off. <laughs> <laughs> it came about through my ongoing love and obsession with Palm Springs, and um, after. Orange County Noir and and USA Noir. Just I I was in a Noir head, and whenever I went to Palm Springs, um, some of you know this story, but I would um, I, I started doing writers retreats out there, and I would um, look up the crime log to see what sort of crime was happening around the houses and the neighborhoods that I was renting because I wanted my people who were coming out to these retreats to be safe. And I just needed to know. And then I just started seeing all this crime in Palm Springs. And um, so loving noir, being obsessed with noir, and there not being a Palm Springs noir collection of stories, anthology of stories, I just had to do it. I wanted to read these stories. So, you know, they say, write the book you want to read. And it was the book I wanted to read. I, you know, I have a story in it, but there are 13 other stories that take place in the desert that, and each one is wonderful. And that's really what I wanted. I wanted a book of desert stories that took place in the Coachella Valley. Mm. And that's probably the, the short answer. Yeah. Out. Then I proposed it to Akashic. They said no at first. Then they said yes. And um, 
and here it is. And you ended up getting uh, 14 people to contribute, right? Including well, yourself. Including me. Including you. I'm the 14th. 14th. <laughs> <laughs> and that includes Alex and, and Rob. Um, we'll, during the podcast, we'll have a period of time where we'll have everybody read a little piece of their story as a little bit of a teaser. So um, Barbara, is it okay if I go to Alex now? And I'll of course, you can do whatever you want. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. And then um, maybe we'll have Alex read his little piece and ask him a question. And then we'll, uh, we'll talk with Rob after that. Does that sound okay? Yep. All right, good. So Alex Espinoza, who is with us, is the author of Stillwater Saints, The Five Acts of Diego Leon, and Cruising an Intimate History of a Radical Pastime. Uh, he has also written for the Los Angeles Times, as well as the New York Times Magazine, VQR, Lit Hub, and NPR's All Things Considered. Alex is the recipient of fellowships from the NEA and McDowell, as well as an American Book Award. And he lives in LA and is the Tomas Rivera Endowed Chair of Creative Writing at the University of California, Riverside. And Alex, good to be with you again. We did a panel recently. Nice to have you back. We did, our, our, all of our paths keep crossing. So it's very nice to be here with all of you. And um, it's very nice to be um, in this anthology um, with individuals like Barbara and Rob, whose work I've known for a long time and, and who's you know, uh, writing and, and, and um, is someone I've you know, really admired and followed. And people like Todd Goldberg, you know, Todd and I had never been in, a, in, on a, in an anthology together. So this is our, my first time being in an anthology with a lot of people that I admire. Uh, Janet Fitch, you know, it's, it's just been a really great um, uh, uh, experience. And uh, it was my first time writing noir. Mm -hmm. So um, I appreciate, you know, Barbara's reaching out and sort of challenging me to write something um, kind of outside of my sort of typical wheelhouse. And um, I, um, as I said in a previous um, interview, that I kind of was a little miffed about how to write noir. And it was Todd who said to me, just include a dead body. And preferably if that dead body's floating in water, that, that would be ideal. <laughs> so that's kind of what I did. And I, I wrote this piece and then I, I, okay. I sent it to Barb and I was like kind of wincing, like, this is what I wrote. I don't know if it's right. And, um, and you know, lo and behold, Barbara's like, it's perfect. So I was like, all right. Um, <laughs> so I'll just read, I'll read a short section in the beginning. Um, and then, um, yeah, we'll have a, we'll have a chat. The title of the story is The Salt Calls Us Back. And it's about a group of um, religious um, renegades, I wanna say. I don't wanna call them a cult uh, because I kind of feel like that, that term is oftentimes uh, misused and overused. And um, they're, they're not quite a cult. They're kind of a cult, maybe they're cult-like. And um, they settle in the desert um, they all live in um, uh, trailers, mobile homes, uh, no trailers actually, Winnebago's, and they sort of migrate and they've ended up in um, Palm Springs. And I sort of wanted to play with the, uh, the myth of, um, of the, the, the history rather of these religious fringe religious groups that always seem to sprout in California. 
And so this is, this is a group, yeah. They and, call, in the book you say, they refer to themselves as an order, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, an order. So they're, they're an order. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I will read the beginning of this. Um, it was one of ours who first found her things along the gray silt and dried up fish bones near the edge of the Salton Sea. They were simple articles, a pair of sandals decorated with jeweled tortoises climbing along the leather straps, a straw hat with a wide brim, a coin purse with a few dimes and pennies rolling around inside like errant thoughts. Stuffed in a striped canvas bag, the boy found a thin piece of fabric stained with drops of blood, broken sunglasses, and an envelope with the name Rebecca scrawled in blue ink, followed by a string of numbers and letters, dashes, and periods. 68-12 period 00W-87 period 01 period 02 period RYZ period. She was a woman, no doubt about that, because of the sandals and the bag, the indiscriminate piece of fabric the boy said was neatly folded. Like this, he told us, mimicking the motion of someone folding laundry. Very neat. It was a perfect square. We wondered how he knew about these things, about perfect squares, how the numbers were written on the envelope were strange enough to remember. We wondered all of this to ourselves, but stayed quiet as he went on, his sticky hands smelling of maple syrup, his red forehead beaded with sweat. We could see as clearly and plainly as the date palms lining the perimeter of the lot where we parked, the place we called home for now. Who is this boy's mother? One of us whispered. Some among us shrugged their shoulders. I don't know. Yo no sé, the old woman with the raspy voice and bloodshot eyes replied. A few of the men smoked and paced back and forth, nervous in that way men always are. Go on, we implored him. Tell us more, what else? None of us ventured out much anymore. We preferred the cool darkness inside our trailers. We drew the blinds, turned fans on, the generators humming along the, like a large swarm of giant hornets. We ate little. We listened to the preachers on the radio and waited for the end to come, just like we'd been taught. Now this boy was telling us a story about these mysterious items left along the banks of that salted sea. Was it a sign? Had she been sent to us by the divine presence? Was it a test? Was this boy even real? None of us were certain we even knew where he came from. Maybe he was making it up. Maybe he was lonely and looking for attention. When we asked him where he lived, where he came from, he pointed toward the opened doorway. So, Alex, where did you, how did this story begin? I've always wondered how it began because especially since, you know, you talked to Todd and he said, you know, get the dead body in there in the water. Um, and you hadn't written noir, like what happened? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I, I was in the, I was in the desert when, um, I was writing this. I, my partner and I had, um, booked, um, a stay at a really nice resort, um, spa in desert hot springs. And, um, I was hanging out in the pool, um, enjoying the heat um, in a way that I really never had. Was there a dead um, body in the pool? No, there wasn't. There okay, wasn't. Good. There was not. This was a really <laughs> fancy spot. We, we like, we went 
we went, we totally like um, broke the bank. We're like, we're going to, we're just going to go and get facials and massages. And, and we spent a lot of time driving around and sort of seeing parts of the desert that I, I hadn't seen uh, before. I mean, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm fairly intimate with, um, you know, the Coachella Valley, having lived in Riverside and, and always driving out to the Salton Sea. Um, but I got to see um, the streets and um, the region sort of in, on a more granular level. Mm-hmm. And um, I started meditating on this idea of the strangeness of how a place like Palm Springs being, brings people from um, a bunch of different socioeconomic backgrounds together. I mean, shopping in the grocery store, you know, you know I saw people who you know, were driving down the street you know, you see people who, who clearly sort of wound up in the desert, right? Mm-hmm. And then you see people who um, are pretty wealthy and, you know, go out and have the luxury to be able to sort of spend, you know, thousands of dollars at a fancy resort. And so I kind of wanted to play with that idea of the sort of the economic imbalance, I think, that, that we often, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of encounter, um, but don't often see. And then, like I said, just just the idea of uh, playing with this notion of um, these fringe religious groups that get started in California in places of of kind of out of utter desperation uh, and you know um, and and a desire to sort of belong. Um, how ironic it is that we manage to build something in the most unlikely of geographies, right? Mm. So that's kind of I mean it just came about that way, and then. And then I was at this resort and I saw this sign of the composition of the water in the, in the springs that we were sort of, you know, swimming around it. And so I remember thinking like, like I, I jotted the sort of, cause it had like all the different sort of, you know, minerals that were in the water. And then my partner and I were talking and I was like, I gotta write the story, I gotta write the story. And then I started talking about like a body shows up somewhere in the Salton Sea. And he said, well, maybe the body doesn't, they do in, you know, the forensic shows that the body has water that doesn't match the sort of mm. composition of the salt and sea. So I was like, oh, okay. And that's kind of how I use those two, you know, sort of uh, strands, those two stories and, and, mm. um, and sort of played with this idea of like, I don't know what happens when a dead body washes up and what, what are these people doing? And they take it as a sign that it's, it's something prophetic to them and it sort of causes them to unravel a little bit. Mm. So that's kind of how it came about. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, these stories for people who maybe haven't seen the book yet really sort of straddle like the greater Palm Springs area, Coachella Valley and Salton Sea, where Alex's story is, is, I don't know, 20, 25 miles from Palm Springs, but it's a completely different world. It's like a, almost like a lunar landscape, you know, it's so scary. Um, And I was telling before we got on the podcast that you know, you can smell the salt and sea sometimes in Palm Springs. Like today I could smell it, but it's so, it's not so far away, but it's so far away. You know? Yeah. And I used to, you know, when, when I lived in Riverside, um, I used to drive out. I think I was telling Barbara the story last time. I used to drive out just on a whim out to the, you know, the desert. And I would always end up at the salt and sea. I would always end up driving around and around and um, almost looking for something but not really quite knowing what I was looking for right and that's kind of what I wanted to channel in the story is these individuals kind of looking for something but not 
not really able to to pinpoint what it is that they're sort of finding, right? Um, and I kind of wanted to, to channel that because I remember those times kind of driving out there and, and meditating and, and thinking to myself, why am I out here? You know, what am I, <laughs> what am I hoping to find? Right. Um, and I still think about that. That still, that still calls me, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I came about. Interesting, thanks. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, Barbara's story, which we'll have her do a reading from a little bit is in Palm Springs proper, like a number of them. But, you know, the other two guests today, Alex and Rob, you're both kind of on the periphery a little bit. You're sort of on the Eastern seaboard of the Coachella Valley, if you will. And Rob, you're, um, you're out in Wonder Valley much of the time. Um, And um, so I will just introduce Rob briefly. He's uh, from Wonder Valley, which is in the high Mojave desert. And he's the author of four books of fiction and one memoir, which is called Liar. Uh, which was selected for the Barnes and Noble Discover Great New Writers Program. Uh, His short fiction and essays have been widely anthologized, and he is currently at work on a novel. So, Rob, do you want to comment briefly on the story that you wrote and read us a little passage? Sure, thank you. Uh, Great to be here with everyone. Alex, I did have a question before I read. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Have you spent, like, any time like overnights in Bombay Beach on the east side of the Salton Sea? No. It is my favorite place on earth. It, it's it's like the most heartwarming, most apocalyptic, beautiful poison place in the world. It's wow. it's like the Gary, Indiana of the sea. And <laughs> and I just I, I love it there. I go there to write all the then I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna I'm gonna all have right. to do that. And, wow. and it's the people are really uh cool. Although I wonder if they would even care if somebody washed up unless it was one of the townies. (laughs) 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 They're a a community. Wow. I think you're going to have to write about it, Rob, and mention that it's the Gary, Indiana of this. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's fantastic. (laughs) Do you want to read a little passage and maybe tell us the title? Sure. Um, I'm sorry. should have prepped with. Ah. Okay. Um, did you say a little pre- uh, or uh, oh, the title yeah. Expendables, which comes from this CIA MK Ultra mind control studies of the early 60s and actually um, it was unearthed later into the early 70s. Um, the Tuskegee Airmen experiment lasted until 1973. I, I had no clue that it was that long. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but having researched much about the actual CIA, it's not a conspiracy. <laughs> They're vile. <laughs> okay, sorry. Oh, one tip for writers. I've been doing some promo work for this book, so I don't like to be prescriptive about writing at all. I don't, you know, I'm no expert. Um, but I reading uh, the third paragraph, I mean, the uh, fourth paragraph first, which tells me the first three paragraphs are not necessary and shouldn't be there, <laughs> which always happens to me um, when I'm actually doing the work in book form. Somehow. <laughs> Maybe it's the sort of permanence. But anyway, for the, the fourth paragraph, I'm in hiding if, if you couldn't tell by looking. I sit on my screen porch here in the high desert. An unforgiving burning sun that keeps people away is perfect for me. 
You've spent a summer out here and you wonder why the people stopped here on their westward expansion. 120 miles from LA, from paradise. But it wasn't like that distance was easy that back then. My guess is that they rode until they dropped and they probably got here in fall or when the weather sits in the low 90s down to the low 70s. When nights are all, <laughs> nights are all 75 and it's beautiful all day. I didn't watch the clouds change the colors of my mountains to the north, from sharp grays to later in the day, a dark tint like a car window, to a burst near sunset that looks like the cotton candy of the most beautiful, <clears throat> the most beautiful and colorful atomic bomb. Um, mushroom. <laughs> the place might hold a place of love in my heart if I didn't have to be here. Um, thanks. Yeah. Wow. So I'm curious too, like, how did this happen? I mean, you know, it's, it's a wild story. And, um, had you written, you, you were in Orange County Noir, which is how I met you a long time ago, but, um, do you write noir regularly and has this been on your mind and, and have you seen noir as, as sort of the form the story should take or, or um, what? Well, I mean, it's origin is that I, I have never known what book will follow the book I'm working on until now. And I have two books in the pipeline of, you know, aspirations. And I think I may just be fooling myself to that I'm not that far from death if I have three books left. <laughs> um, but I, it's weird. I mean, my first novel uh, on HarperCollins, in some, it was a crime imprint at the time. My agent had sent that book to, I don't know, 24 with the big places with the big five back then. And it got a lot of really nice, you know, rejection. Like the writing's amazing. Well, actually, the greatest was it was really hot for a week and it looked like it was going to sell with a bidding war. And people were pirating manuscripts and sending them to LA. And I was like, wow, is this what happens to writers? And it's like, and then nothing. And that's what happens to writers. <laughs> but uh, but the CAA, who we didn't send to, of course, they don't publish books, um, sent back a note, which I, I cherish as a rejection. <laughs> um, we love this writing. We don't want to work with the mind that thought up that enemies. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, we'll work with um, Then it, it, it's a weird publication uh, uh, story, which isn't a lot of them are, but um, it, to make it as brief as I can, when it got shipped to Hollywood, some producer read it. Six months after the book was rejected by everyone, it was dead in the water. Um, and uh, this guy, Michael Scholl, had just started a crime imprint that published classics and new um, uh, crime, noir, suspense novels. Now, I thought I had written, I mean, not, I don't mean this in a, in a, in a sort of prejudicial way, um, because literary fiction is a genre just as much as everything else. It has tons of conventions that if you break them, the reader gets unsettled. And that could be great or bad. <laughs> Um, but anyway, he told, told this guy, he's like, I know a perfect book for you, but it must have sold by now. And so that's the weird way I, I got published for the first time in a crime or um, noir related 
um, kind of thing. But I don't, um, what happened was I was, this novel is taking forever for me. They usually take like two years and it's like seven already. Um, and I just was reading a, a lot. I read nonfiction when I'm writing fiction primarily. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it falls, and now it's a now it's a superstition, like because <laughs> um, that's how I finish them. Apparently, uh, um, your 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 story to me, in some ways, almost felt like the darkest of all of them in the book. Thanks, you know, because it was so. Um, I mean, it was so fantastic, so well written, but it was so close to home in a way, you know, because you were talking about things based on reality with the CIA and torture and uh, Nazis. And, you know, there were so many different elements thrown in there and it was really rich and, and, and dark, I think, because it, it kind of hits close to home in a way. I mean, it even has some references to stuff that I think many of us think might have an overlay of things that are continue to happen. Right. Yeah. Am I right about that? I think so. Yeah. Um, but thank you um, so much for those words. <laughs> But yeah, it just happened. I was writing my novel and I had an idea for a new novel. So I wrote two chapters of the CIA book. Mm -hmm. Structured a little bit like T.C. Boyle's Kinsey, uh, mm -hmm. The Inner Circle, mm -hmm. in that I'm using all the real people, Sidney Gottlieb, the poisoner in chief, and Alan Dulles, the corrupt head, well, maybe corrupt head of the CIA as well. Um, yeah. So I wrote two chapters because I didn't want to lose it. Yeah. And it just so happened that, um, when, when Barbara so kindly <laughs> um, <laughs> took mine, uh, that I wanted to stay with that character, even though this is not a section that's going to happen in that novel. So I'm using the real people with a, a made up narrator in the middle, which uh, Boyle did with the Kinsey study. And uh, it's a fun structure. So that's, that's how it came. But I don't, I don't really think of myself as a crime or noir writer, but I have an awful lot of crime and darkness in my work. So it's not conscious, although I, I love noir. I mean, so it, it probably seeps in just by, mm. just by the influence without, I mean, unconsciously even. I mean, yeah. I mean, from the thirties to the sixties, you know, I've read a ton of, not my, you know, <laughs> a ton of noir and yeah. it's, I think no, Barbara it's quality escape for me, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I think Barbara on at least one of the other panels I moderated with you and some of the other writers, we talked about that sometimes that confusion or crossover of suspense, mystery, thriller, noir, just the, the categorizing and how things can sort of flow from one to the other, or there could be different thoughts about noir. You know, noir could be dead body in the water, you know, um, you know, in Rob's case, it was, you know, there was stuff around, you know, paranoia, uh, paranoia and torture, the CIA. And so there's so many different overlays. What, what, what do you think, Barbara? Well, I was just thinking of what one of my students um, said after one of the panels might've been the launch we did at Skylight, or it might've been, it was somewhere, one of the events she wrote to me and she's, she said, I appreciate noir in a, in a way that I hadn't before. And she's a lawyer and she's, she said, she talked about um, noir and realism and how, I think I wrote down what she said, that it explores the dark side of the human psyche 
and speaks to issues no one wants to talk about. Mm. And it's so true, right? I mean, you know, all the genres, all the subgenres of the crime genre um, are dealing with issues, but it just seems that noir goes a little deeper and darker mm-hmm. and will go into those issues. And maybe that's also why it's the least popular of all the subgenres, right? Because there's not this wonderful, cheery, you know, ending where everything, you know, is, you know, the good guy wins, the bad guy's destroyed. And, you know, it's it's uh, black and white, victorious, right? Yeah. I think that's I like a- that. I like the realism aspect. I thought that made a lot of sense. I think you're right. I mean, I, I hadn't read much more until I read the anthology and, you know, I read you know, some number of the stories a number of times. And, you know, I grew to appreciate it more as I read them and as I was part of the panels and I heard people talking about it. And I think I agree with you as much as I love the plot developments and the twists and stuff. I enjoyed some of the psychological underpinnings that everybody had in their stories. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. It is. That's what I love about it. Do you want to read um, a short piece from your story, Barbara? So this is The Water Holds You Still, and it takes place in Twin Palms, which is um, not downtown Palm Springs, but in Palm Springs, right? I mean, it has a Palm Springs zip code. The landline rang after midnight. It had to be my mother down in Palm Springs. She was the reason I kept the line. I picked up. Hi, mom. There was a noise, she said. I stood my brush in a jar of water. Red paint escaped the bristles, a blood cloud. I took the phone outside, the curly black cord stretched taut as a tightrope. Ferns along the patio were wet with night mist, common here on the central coast. Houses settle at night, I said, and make noises. A few months ago, she began calling me about noises at night and the calls were coming more often. A puff of breath and the faint strain of music, Sinatra, mood indigo. She'd become obsessed with him more so since my stepfather Jerry died. A coyote was out by the pool, she said. It was sniffing the water. Maybe it's bored, I said. No little dogs around to eat. Greta, that's not funny. You're keeping Joey Bishop in, right? He was her little red Pomeranian. He's in. Her voice dropped an octave. My sapphire ring is missing. Your brother was here. Every time he stops by, something goes missing. Are you sure? Out on the highway, red and blue lights whirled by. Last week, it was my diamond earrings. I was going to give those to you. I took it personally. My brother knew they would be mine someday. I've always loved those earrings. Has anyone other than Ben been around? Repair people, pool cleaner, gardener. I can't keep track. So it could be anyone. Do you think your brother's gambling again, she asked. People go to those pawn shops up on on Palm Canyon and over in Cathedral City to sell things they steal or they sell them on Clubslist. You mean Craigslist. Make fun. Look, Mom, I said, if Ben's stealing from you, call the police. Turn him in. I can't. He's my son. Mm. So that's it. That's the first page and a half. And... uh... You've talked a little bit about the genesis of that story. Maybe for the sake of the podcast, you can talk a little bit about it here as well. Sure. Um, You know, this story had a lot of different beginnings. 
because I was in the house writing it that it takes place in. So um, I remember starting it a bunch of times and it just, you know, I mean, the nice thing about short stories is you can start them and if it's not working, you throw it out and start again. And I think I kept trying to find the beginning and then um, I was at this house with the swimming pool and I'm always suspicious of swimming pools um, because of the electricity connected to them through the lights. And um, I started thinking, I think I started doing research at that point to see if people had ever been electrocuted in a swimming pool. And I found that they had. And so that very much became an impetus to begin um, and have that um, problem find its way into the book. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I seem to bring my family into everything I write in some way or another. I mean, often disguised, but, you know, my family, old boyfriends, um, you know, old best friends. And so the mother, the brother, and um, Greta, the protagonist of the story, really me, my brother, and my mother. We didn't deal with this, but we dealt with um, secrets and betrayal. And, um, and I, I, I brought them into the story. And there was a swimming pool, there was them. And then there were a lot of, there's a lot of pool cleaners in Palm Springs. And I remember this one day there was at this house, there was this really cute pool cleaner. And I, I don't think I'd ever seen one that cute. I mean, really extremely cute. And um, <clears throat> I'm like, oh, he's my pool cleaner. And so <laughs> that's kind of, you know, the parts. And then it just came together. Yeah. And you're, you know, <clears throat> unlike Alex and Rob, whose stories are, set in the periphery, you know, of the Coachella Valley, you're like dead center in Palm Springs. And you capture some of that feeling of the, um, that's sort of quintessentially Palm Springs, you know, the pool and the pool guy and uh, the nostalgia with the references to sort of old Hollywood, um, you know, being in Twin Palms, um, you know, your mom sort of, the mom in the story feels kind of like a classic character of this area. Did you always have to know that you were going to be in Palm Springs? Did you have to do some research for the story or did the stuff kind of come naturally for you? Um, I think I did do some research in terms of like Slim Aaron's is mentioned in the story and I love his photography, but, you know, I had to get something right. I mean, just like that kind of the details, just to make sure I had them right. But um, and then the picking the Frank Sinatra songs for the sections was a lot of fun, like what songs go with what stories and where do the stories go? So they fit in that song. And um, so, I mean, I think the most research I did really was on um, the safety of swimming pools. That was really or the danger. And yeah. um, because I've been going to Palm Springs a lot and. When I'm out there, I, I love to uh, rent mid-century modern homes. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's been that and the study of mid-century modern for a bunch of years. So maybe ongoing research, but without knowing I was researching, you know. Yeah. It's most research, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So Rob, true. You, you, I mean, you had you know, a lot of information in your story about the CIA, CIA and like different types of torture and 
stuff around nerve gas. Did did you just know about that already? Or did you have to- <laughs> uh, no, I, um, uh, long ago, I, I, I think it was at the WeHo Fair, which thank you so much for carrying for so many years and creating. That was a wonderful fair, festival. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was after the panel and we were driving back and I'd said on the, someone asked, do you do research? And I said, nah, I don't really do research. You know, I'm not that disciplined. And on the way home, they said, uh, you're so full of shit. Why did you tell people that? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought it was true. She's like, you get into something and you read 30 books on it. You watch every documentary you can find and you argue with them when they're wrong. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's research. Scary. I just thought it was reading. Um, <laughs> but you know, from the, I don't believe in the write what you know so much as write what you're obsessed with. And, um, mm. but I think people forget that books are an experience, not just hang gliding or surfing. Books, I mean, Oscar Wilde said, the majority of novels are more about other novels than they are about the geography. Mm. So you're in a a discourse with them, but so yeah, I I got obsessed with that. And I, the thing I liked, uh, although I I thought I was stretching it, Barbara might say that's another county, (laughs) 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 high desert. Um, But I was reminded, like, and I love it about both your stories. And I think it's it's something that stories need, and writers get it or they don't in some ways. Um, Was. Jim Thompson, when he was blind and li- living above Musso Frank and broke and told his wife, don't sell my rights. I'm going to be huge in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, and so did she or no? What? She yeah, yeah. yeah, she made bank. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was the only money Jim Thompson really ever brought home. <laughs> um, but his nephew had sent him a letter about being a writer and wanted some tips. And he wrote back... <laughs> Um, there are 33 plots. I've written them all, mm. but never forget. There's only one story. Things are not as they seem. Mm. And that's been a guiding light for my writing. And, you know, one of the things I love, I mean, you know, Palms, like these are all stories you don't know before. Um, and, and you don't know when you walk in even. Um, and uh, I really, I mean, like for me, like Bombay Beach on the Salton Sea, which Alex has placed pieces said in, um, right? Great story about it. Um, both, both are like, Thank but you. it's interesting about noir is like, okay, this is not good for a teacher, uh, professor, but is the we um, past plural? Is that the point of view that's called? It's uh, the one I use. What? Yeah, that's the one I use, right? <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's, 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 um, Present plural, I use the we uh, present tense. Yeah, I think it's. I have to. I don't even remember, Rob. I'm sorry. It's How that, did you choose bad, that isn't it? voice? What was that? How did you choose that voice? You know what? I I um. It was kind of. It was. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was. It's it's plural. It's past tense plural. Um, I, I I guess you know what I was channeling. Um. As I, as I said previously in a previous conversation, um, I, one of my favorite short stories is, is um, uh, when, when I was thinking about the story, I was thinking of A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner. Mm. And, you know, and that's like, 
there's a dead body there, right? Sorry if I give it away to any of the listeners, <laughs> but there's a dead body there. And so yeah. I, I like how um, Faulkner plays with the sort of, it's the sort of the, the, the conscience of the community, right? And I think I wanted a sort of conscience, conscience of like this group that's sort of stranded and stuck in this de- in this in this sort of limbo, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be tied or connected to one specific individual in this in this community. I wanted it sort of everyone speaking. So it was kind of a combination of that, and then also, and then and then my just affection for that that story by Faulkner, and then also an attempt to kind of just stretch myself as a writer. I always like to try different things, and since I was trying noir for the first time, I was like, why not just throw everything at it and see what sticks, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and um, and it, I was really pleased with how it, it kind of turned out. Right. I was kind of pleased oh. at the sort of the haunting sort of quality. I think that I was, I was trying to go for the sort of eerie sense of um, uncertainty and, and desperation, not connected to one person, but to an organization. Right. A group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how it came yeah. about. Yeah, I think it was really effective. You know, when you think of that kind of group think and that like homogenous kind of thinking in a, an order, you know, yeah. cult, whatever you want to call it. I think it was a really effective uh, storytelling technique for, for your particular story. It kind of, it did add to the eeriness of it. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I missed my calling. Maybe I should start writing more noir. Maybe. Know. Well, the really cool thing about your point of view is noir is traditionally dominated by first person and voice. And yours is a, a form of first person. I mean, it is a collective and they're singular. I mean, it's what binds them is, is there, they see no difference among them. Right. So it, it was a really interesting way of like sort of having a singular within a plural and it, it the voice totally worked noir wise. And I don't think I've seen, I mean, Todd Goldberg has an amazing story called Walls um, um, that's in the same, <clears throat> point of view um i don't see it used much in it i thought it was really effective here and his in his it's a family and barbara's had you know the drive and urgency that first person noir i think it needs to live in voice yeah you know, more than more than its crimes that's interesting yeah see i, I mean y'all are teaching me stuff i never knew that <laughs> that's really good yeah i mean and you know noir, i mean my knowledge of my knowledge of noir doesn't isn't as vast as, as everybody else's, you know, I mean, I remember like, you know, the big sleep and, you know, I remember reading that in college and, and sort of talking about sort of the elements of what made it, you know, noir and, um, and, but, but I've always been kind of fascinated by the construction of it and uh, the way in which it, it does use sort of tone and mood and darkness. And, um, you know, Todd, Todd was the one that would, that had told me, um, He's like, well, you've kind of always written noir. And I was like, really? And he said, well, there's, there's kind of, cr- there's crime in your first book. Mm. I was like, yeah, there's crime. But, and, <laughs> and he said, he said, noir, you know, he said, you, you write toward hope in, in your, in your work. And I said, yeah. And he said, and, and like noir is like writing toward despair. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. That makes sense. All right. Like, and and I kind of was like, all right, that that kind of I can get that, I can get behind that, right? And so um, 
it, you know, it was, it was just a really fun opportunity to write something uh, different. And again, like I said, just like, just try something else, right? I'm always telling my students, you know, try, try something, try a different approach to your writing. You may surprise yourself, right? And so I really kind of liked the way um, it really taught me um, how to play with mood and voice point of view and all of those things in ways that I really um, hadn't in a while. So it was a, it was a fun exercise. Yeah. Rob, I thought it was interesting in your story that you um, like you took a chance to pair a character who was a German Jewish immigrant who ended up in the CIA with a former Nazi who kind of became his mentor. Um, and I thought that was interesting and sort of daring to, to do that. And it makes sense in the construction of the story, but what a wild kind of quirky pairing. Well, it, it was, it governed the CIA after 1945. Mm. Um, Prior to being in, on the Nuremberg trials, we allowed, you know, von Braun for his rocket expertise because he had he had invented the U two and we basically had balsa wood toy planes. Mm -hmm. um, so, and there were, you know, sadistic doctors who had tortured children. It's like, and you know, in the CIA, they they gave plutonium to developmentally disabled children from the age of four to ten. And their, their conclusion was, if you give them more plutonium, they die faster. It's like, yeah, mm. yeah, we knew that in 1910. <laughs> but I mean, so, so that's, um, there was Operation uh, Paperclip and Operation Artichoke. And Artichoke was this, the, the spies and, um, and Paperclip was mostly engineers, rocket engineers. So that, 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 we viewed ourselves, we were only governed by law not to do what they did, but we desperately wanted what they had. So mm -hmm. that was in so many levels of the CIA. Mm -hmm. another, another thing that I like, <laughs> another thing that I like about, about Rob's story too is, is the way in which it's sort of like the whole idea of the um, conspiracy theory um, the surveillance, the way in which you become um, kind of included in the sort of kind of the idea of the surveillance and the paranoia, right? Like, I, I think that uh, um, I was reading somewhere about, um, it was a podcast I was listening to and uh, looking at sort of the idea of like how conspiracy theories are so embedded in the American consciousness, like going back to like, the American Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. Where um, there was a one um, uh, um, uh, politician um, who was, uh, um, you know, spreading these um, these crazy like um, it was like fake news about um, the Crown, right? About about England and why it was important to sort of separate, right? And then people started sort of buying into it. There was, of course, the during the um, Prohibition, right? Uh, the government was going out of their way to sort of poison alcohol to get people um, afraid of drinking, right? So there's this whole sort of history of, of, of surveillance and conspiracy theories that I think are sort of embedded in the larger American consciousness that I think, you know, your story illuminates on so wonderfully. 
Um, nice. That 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 kind of blows me up because I love those. You know, all of like like getting into sort of conspiracy theories and all of that. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating to me how people believe in them, right? Well, it just struck me when you talked about that. I mean, there are ones where we have enemies from without, but most conspiracy theory that's embedded in America is Americans like surveilling, undermining, secretively destroying other Americans. Yeah. But it's kind of cool. I mean, that it's not great. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, it is, it's a fascinating sort of yeah. world to, you know, delve into. There's such interesting narratives. Yeah. You know? They are narratives. That's what gets people hooked. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that it was so vivid, your lead character who, the way he was uh, tortured, kind of to make sure that he would still be, that he would be complicit in participating with the CIA. And it was, you know, he went through some pretty extreme torture to, for them to be certain that he would, he would be on board to do what he did. Yeah, that was one of those those areas where it, it was based in fact, and I pushed it a little further because I, I wanted to explore what would happen. You know, I mean, when you put people under pressure, you get what's inside of them out. It's like squeezing a lemon. So I wanted to see who he was. Rob, and, were you at your Wonder Valley house when you were writing this? No, I was pining for it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I was just out your head. working on the house a few for a few weeks, and yeah, I just I, I love the desert. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hey, Alex, the um, the boy in your story, um, um, I almost felt a little bit like he. I was afraid for him, you know, like I felt like he was became was in this order and his father abandoned him and almost like he had to pay for the quote unquote sins of his father um it, maybe you could talk a little bit about the boy you know no spoilers or anything but i <laughs> i found him really interesting i mean to me he sort of seemed to have the most wisdom and mystique of anybody you know yeah adults with yeah, I think I get, and again, trying trying not to sort of spoil it, which is I think why he ends up the way he ends up, right? Is yeah. because of that um, that sort of um, knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, the the things that he can and can't say. Um, it was I don't know. It was it was and and I I still don't know um, his ultimate fate. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, like, you know, when, when I finished it, I'm like, I, I don't know what this means. I wasn't sure either. And I liked that. Yeah. I thought about it a lot. Um, yeah, Gordon Lish used to say he didn't want his writers reduce themselves to meaning, which I always Yeah. 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 <laughs> just kind of, I got to that. I was like, I don't know. I'll just, yeah. I'll just leave this here. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it just, I just, I, I thought again, what would the ultimate um what what's the ultimate darkness right like what's the ultimate um like uh just sinister thing that you can do yeah um and that's kind of how i positioned him in that in that situation and i was like okay well um you know dead body wasn't enough then i'm going to present <laughs> this right and so um it's just again it was just like put like pushing it just pushing it just a little more right 
Um, and so I kind of felt like I needed that. I, he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't um, uh, fulfill the promise. Um, again, I'm trying to be really careful how I say this. <laughs> um, so I think his, his fate kind of, you know, where it, where I sort of, where I place him, I think it, that's because that's, that, that character can't go any further. Yeah. Right. But it, but I do always think it's interesting when you have a child and a story that can see in a way that the adults either don't, or they're sort of not willing to, for whatever reasons. And I yeah. found him to be the one in a childlike way, sort of carrying the most wisdom, if you will. Yeah. And that's his father. That's his father's fault. His father, <laughs> father's some crazy, you know, math addict too. Like, you know, you grow up, kids grow up, kids, kids grow up smart, you know, when they're kind of dealing with, with, you know, family members or adults that are not the most responsible. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain wisdom that, that comes with that. And yeah. I wanted sort of to, to, to have a kid that was kind of like, not a victim, but actually kind of smart about the situation that he was in. Mm-hmm. You know, the, in a lot of the noir stories, there's somebody who is smart and savvy and something doesn't happen well because of their smart and savvy, like maybe they <laughs> orchestrate something. Like I would say in Barbara, in your story, you, without any spoilers, you know, you know, someone's savvy enough to craft something that creates uh, something not so great that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what do you, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I've never really thought about that. I find that really kind of interesting. I mean, you want you want characters in noir to be smart, I think, right? And I'm thinking of old, you know, like the old movies. There, there are somewhere. Well, these are the ones I turn off, where the characters are like, "Wait a minute, it wouldn't happen like that." And then the mm-hmm. others that you keep watching, because the characters, you know, are smart, but they're not smart enough. Right. I mean, they're, you know, because that's a great observation. <laughs> True. Yeah. It's also yeah, like my double head. indemnity, right? The characters in double indemnity are yeah. smart, but not smart enough. Yeah. That's true. And I think it's a mix in these stories. Some people are kind of crafty and savvy enough where they, they get away with it, you know, and then others, you're right. It sort of bites them in the butt. They haven't thought it well enough out. You know, they mixed the potion and they killed someone or whatever, but they were discovered easily because it wasn't that clever or something. Except, you know, then you don't know what happens after the story ends, which is probably why I also like open-ended endings because mm-hmm. it's like, well, what happened? I don't know. What do you think happened, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. did my character get caught? Mm-hmm. Did, did the pool guy? I don't know. Did they <laughs> tell us? Well, I'm not going to do a spoiler. I almost did yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, so you don't know that it ends where, where they, you know, got off. You don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Barbara, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I had a question, Corey. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. It's totally based in character, Barbara, which is what makes it work. But again, in the, you, you, paint a sinister underbelly to a beautiful um was that ever thought of or was it just part of what you were writing and happenstance i don't think i thought about it yeah you know it's like 
I was thinking about this, how you get into a, a mode or a mood or um, a voice or a tone, and it almost carries the story with it. I don't know, it, does that happen in novels the same way? I suppose the best novels it does, right? But it seems harder somehow, like a story, you can, you get onto the train and you stay on the train until you reach the station and somehow you just, I just stay there. But I'm not thinking sinister, I'm not, I'm just, mm. no, I wish, I wish I knew. Um, mm. <laughs> I really do because then it could be remanufactured every time you know like well how'd you get there? okay do this again <laughs> yeah what do you think who you oh I I, I, I <laughs> uh well I I don't think of anything when I'm writing I try to just have it be an empty zen space hmm. surfing or sex you know there aren't so many in life that work that way. So I embrace it in writing, but on revision, I mean, I'm a critical, you know, I just, you know, I'm a geek. I, I you know, there's years of critical 120. If you go back to Twain's, uh, the sins of James Fenimore Cooper and the better sequel, mm. the further sins of James Fenimore Cooper. I've read a lot of theories. So on revision, I think about stuff like that. Or like, you know, Pam Houston and I were talking one time and she's uh, she's a really great writer and, and a great teacher. And we were, you know, I was really impressed with the one, one time I saw her do it. Um, but she had an interesting framework. She didn't like think in conflict or um, uh, she said, I ask every, of every scene when I revise, did I give the reader enough to worry about? Mm -hmm. So, and that's a conflict. You know, it's like John Cage's 505, the piano piece where he just plays C for the whole time. It's like, that's a conflict between text and, and, and uh, audience. And as long as it's not manipulative, I think that's a beautiful uh, mm -hmm. sort of unease. Mm -hmm. I, I like that unease. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's interesting. What, what do you think, Alex? I, I think that Barbara and Rob are a lot smarter than me. <laughs> Just like nodding. Um, no, I think, I mean, I think, I think, I think you're right though, Rob. I think it's a lot of that comes in, in the revision. I mean, when I'm, when I'm writing, I'm just trying to get a story down. I'm just trying to like, you know, figure out who these people are and what they want, you know, and, and, and I always, I always think like my job is either to give them what they want or not. Right. And if I give them what they want, um, it's not quite what they want. You know, I always use the analogy, your characters at a party and they walk in and the room's crowded and they're really thirsty. And there's a table at the other end of the room um, with a pitcher of water and a glass. And all they want to do is get to that pitcher of water and a glass, but they keep getting interrupted by people at the party saying, hey, how have you been? What's going on? And you know, and then they just, all they want to do is just get to that, that picture. And by the time they get to it, because they've been interrupted so much, it's a sandwich, <laughs> right? So it's like, you, you know, you quite, that, that's kind of what I'm always like, like sort of trying to get my characters to like, do like, I think you, I think, I think you want this, but 
I don't know if I'm going to give it to you or not. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try and see what happens, but, but, and then, and then in the revision, I'm always going and I see it more as like layering, like, you know, adding sort of, you know, layers upon layers upon layers of, of things. And that's what I was doing this morning in this, this novel that I'm working on is, you know, I'm just sort of like getting very granular and, and asking myself what, you know, what do my characters want? What do they, what do they, what's making them tick? And, you know, uh, once they reveal it to me, am I going to give it to them or am I not? Mm. And I won't know until I get to that point. Right. So it's, it's, it's challenging and and frustrating, but also really kind of, for lack of a better word, orgasmic, right. When you sort of like figure it out, like, ah, you know, it's just this sort of, you know, it's this just great feeling that you really can't put into words when you, when the character kind of reveals what it is that they want. And then you're sort of at this moment where like, do I give it to them or not? Mm. And you're the ultimate sort of, you know, God in that moment. Right. Yeah. Um, So Alex, is your process the same, whether you're working on a short story or a novel, is the novel just grander? Yeah. I think the novel's just grander. I think there's just more, you know, more moving parts. I, I short stories for me are, they're a challenge because I like, you know, I'm really wordy. I'm sort of like, you know, I like to get to know my characters and I go in and I start, you know, I start writing them and then I want to know like what kind of food they like. Are they allergic to, you know, peanuts? Do they like, you know, uh, did they throw up on roller coasters when they were five? Like there's just a lot of things that come up for me. So a short story is really not conducive to a lot of those um, digressions. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, you know, novels kind of will allow them a little more. So um, I feel like with, with the novel, I have more of an opportunity to sort of, you know, finger paint. Um, and with the short story, it's just kind of a little trickier, which is why I don't really, uh, you know, uh, write them as much as I, I think I should, but I admire them immensely. Um, you know, I admire the writers that can really sort of, hone in and give me a world in you know in 15 16 pages um and and um where it takes me like you know 256 pages right like how do you do that like why can't i do that but you know every i think every form has its you know yeah purpose right and every writer has their um you know their their uh it's like a conversation I think we all have with those forms, right? Um, you know, uh, I can't, I, I, have a, I have better conversations with characters in novels than I can in, in short stories. Mm-hmm. Them, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if you have, you know, John Doe in the living room and you're writing about John's clothes and all the details of the living room and, you know, everything that's going on around him, but you never know anything about John Doe the character isn't that interesting. You yeah. Know, you wanna, you wanna get, even if it's just little flickers of who John Doe is or a thought in their head or something. I mean, be- I've seen beautiful writers write beautifully about places and locations and stuff, and then maybe forget a little bit about who the character is in the setting, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah. I think there, for me, and this is not all, but I, there's a difference for me between structurally, uh, and this is any label both articulates and reduces. So there's obvious tons of exceptions, but I, I 
when I teach and when I write short fiction, like if you picture a funnel, that's a novel structure to me is that you have all these separate or elements that don't come to a conclusion. I don't, I hate endings that conclude, but yeah. they, and they end, they, they, the funnel gets narrower and the story closes usually on the characters of the point. Whereas I, I think of stories as an inversion of that. Their endings are radically different. Like that's the funnel upside down where you're doing a very focused yeah. narrative about generally fewer people. And mm -hmm. a short story to me doesn't work unless it ends opening up to a larger world, implying mm -hmm. a huge world that these people have been struggling in. So it's in a way for me, short story endings are bigger than like mm. the stories have a torque and a leverage if, if they pull that off, I think. Yeah, that's true. Novels tend to have more or less ambiguity right at the end, whereas a short story, you can have that. Mm. Mm. I mean, don't you want to be like at the end of a novel, be satisfied with the ending and how it ended and there's a certain closure? I don't know. I think it depends. I mean, I read a book I love called The, the Barbarian Nurseries by Hector Tobar. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the ending to like the last sentence, you there could be some different ways that something happens with a character and you don't really know. Mm -hmm. And I loved the what that made me think about. I mean, I don't want to spoil the book, but I sort of loved that he did that. Now, but there's some people who read it that thought, how come I don't know exactly you know, what happened? Mm -hmm. um, I have that book. I need to read it. I started it and I just, I put it somewhere. I don't know where it is. I've got to find it and read it. It's a great LA book that mm -hmm. travels around LA, kind of like Palm Springs Noir, you know, kind right. of goes all over the Coachella Valley. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It's interesting, the whole funnel idea though, Rob, I have to, I have to think about this. It's interesting. It may be entirely boneheaded. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, it, it makes sense. It just, the shapes of, the shape of things, right? The shape of a narrative makes sense. I have a bit, I mean, not, not a serious uh, bit of synesthesia where you uh, like color, taste colors and, um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, sort of, uh, but so to me, there's, there's, there's something about, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure what my point was there. I'm very sorry. No, but I like, I mean, is that interesting with synesthesia? I've only read a couple of novels where um, a character has that. One was T. Jefferson Parker's, oh, I don't remember which novel it was, but I, I can't remember. But I love this character who had synesthesia. I thought it was so interesting and wondered how it would affect you. Like, how does it affect your writing? How do you, does it help you? Um. I think it's, I just, you know, all of us in life have forced limitations that we try to sort of expand, but they, you know, to me, it's like sort of everything I'm good at as a writer now, if I live, will be the best thing 70, but hopefully you learn to hide your weaknesses a great deal better. Uh, mm. as you know, but, um, but yeah, I, I saw at a music lecture once, Elvin Jump. Jones, the great drummer, and he was playing and he's like, okay, your snare, your snare is your blue. You got to add some yellow. And he goes to the ride symbol. I'm like, mm. 
it's the first person I've ever heard that thinks like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all experience things differently as readers, as, uh, you know, viewers, you know, I'm a music junkie. I hardly ever remember lyrics because to me, I key the music keys to me first. And if I'm not grooving with the music, it might, it, it's, I'm, it's hard for me to love the song, even if it's great lyrics, you know? Some people, they love, you know, they immediately tune into the lyrics of the song. Um, and I suppose, you know, book is the same way if you're the reader, you know, the appreciator, you know, to, you know, one's, one's person's story they love is another one that someone says, gee, I didn't get that, you know? Right. Well, it's interesting with this, with this anthology that, you know, the reviews and, and um, from press, as well as, you know, personal, you know, friends reviews, everybody does key in on a different story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's so interesting how that is. Um, I'm always interested to hear what, you know, favorites. I'm, I'm always asking people, well, what's your favorite? Why is that one your favorite? And um, it's just interesting because they're all my favorite. I, you know, I love each one, but um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we all read a different book too. I don't think any two readers are reading the same book. Yeah. You know, it can be as small as a horn out your window and it can be as large as the paragraph you skipped or yeah. any of these things create a different experience of reading. But I mean, for me, this is really weird. Is like, there's a communication between your story, Barbara and Alex's to me that, you know, what a maybe a handful of other readers would think about, but the Salton Sea has been California's, they called it California's worst environmental, Mm -hmm. as recently as 19, it started in 1991-1992, and it's the biggest environmental disaster, and I think the only reason they're addressing it now is that Palm Springs is a six billion dollar a year tourist industry, and they don't want to smell dead fish and sulfur, and that's the only reason they give a shit about the people around the Salton Sea. Salt the sea. Right. I think you're right. But so, because yours communicated to me in a way that maybe someone who doesn't spend a whole lot of time at the sea would uh, see a connection, hmm. a, a conflict between and among places. Right. Right. Hmm. Well, I think it was certainly to your good fortune, Barbara, that you picked great people who had so many terrific stories set in, you know, a variety of areas out here. And, um, you know, they all kept my interest. Um, They were all so completely different. And I'd been living out here a little over a year and knew a little bit about this area, but I felt like through the book, I was able to experience, you know, the greater Palm Springs, Coachella Valley area in a way that I had never thought about. And I've actually kind of gone to a couple places, you know, since reading some of those stories. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite rich. It's really rich. Thank you, so, Corey. Congrats. Yeah, I think so yeah. too. You know, in some cases, I didn't know um, the, the writer's work, a couple of writers I'd never met. And, um, but just in, you know, there's so much you pick up through um, just emails, right? Voice and, and um, brilliance and all. It's funny what comes through. Just, I mean, there were, I communicated with some people that um, it didn't work out with for whatever reason. And um, yeah, I agree, you know, not a dud in the bunch. 
Well, what do you what do you think? I think we're yeah, I think at the hour-ish point. We are. <laughs> we're a little over, which is fun to be going straight to podcasts, so it can be longer. And um, yeah, thank you so much, all of you, for yes, this and organizing this. I think I need to take my dog out. That's why he keeps coming in here and like. <laughs> yes, Alex and Rob, thank you. And Corey, thank you so much for uh, oh, welcome. being yeah, it was fun. a perfect literary maestro co-host. Thank um, you. Well, it was fun to be uh, on stage with you all, so to speak, after being backstage for so long. I know. West Hollywood Fair. So. Likewise, everyone. Enjoyed it. So if for the people who are listening, if you tuned in late, we're talking about Palm Springs Noir published by Akashic Books. It was released um, July 6th and it's uh, in bookstores. It's online all over the place and um, libraries, order it at your library even. So um, just, I thank you. I thank all the contributors for being a part of it. And, um, and thank you for listening to the show. This, you've been listening to Writers on Writing, and uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.